Hi everyone, this is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started today, I just wanted to mention that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. everyone. I'm so glad that you're here this week. And Beth, hey, how are you? And I, I'm excited to talk about a couple things that I've been looking at this week on our stats. Well, I'm interested to hear them too. Tell me. Yeah. So I was looking at our stats and uh, our map is really, really blowing up. So yes, I put the social media out there to say that we are global. And I just wanted to say thank you to all of our new listeners this week and keep telling your friends because just every day I'm seeing those numbers go up and I can't tell you how much we appreciate that. So thanks so much. Real quick before I get into conversation with you today, Beth, I wanted to at least tell every Everybody, one thing that's going on, I am having the hardest time with my microphone on my computer. So I know the sound is probably not top notch quality. I'm working on that. I actually have a really good microphone that we bought before we even started this podcast, but I'm having to test a couple and I really don't think it's the microphone itself. It's probably the software that we're using to connect with each other between two countries. So I just want to let everybody know I am working on on that sound and I'm trying to get that fixed as quickly as possible. But otherwise, that's all I've got. Beth, what are you up to? Well, there's a stamp fest going on this weekend and I I put up my challenge early at eight o'clock this morning. And when I'm done the podcast, I'll spend the rest of the day doing the challenges, making cards and using their techniques. So I'm really excited to get it done. Good deal. That sounds nice. I need to get out and do a couple things myself. The weather is turning beautiful and I think it's time to start gardening so that's my relaxation is gardening mm, so we're having a little bit of snow on the forecast through the week i was not expecting not that <laughs> no because you just dug yourself out of your parking spot i know <laughs> I just can't say enough. That is the probably the number one reason why I never moved back to Canada. I know you all heard me say that before. So, hey, are you ready to get started on part two? Yes. You did such a good job last week storytelling. And while I was editing, I was still just as intrigued as the first time you told me. And I just can't get over the fact that I've never heard about H.H. Holmes before. So I hope that going into part two, that we have a lot more information and I'm excited to hear about that. But I wanted to kind of give a recap to start off with about part one for any of our new listeners. You really Really have to go back to part one. What we did is we talked a little bit more about Holmes being an entrepreneur, but also a swindler before he began his murderous behaviors. And he is known as one of America's or is he known as America's first serial killer? First serial killer. 
Gotcha. So he's the first American serial killer. And I found a documentary since the first part on Amazon Prime called The Murder Hotel, which is a very good description of why Holmes began killing people. So in part one, we talked about Holmes being in medical school and how he would work with cadavers. We also talked about how he was going to fake his own death by using some of those cadavers so that he could dissolve his marriage with his first wife, Clara. Well, Holmes admitted that by going to look at dead bodies day after day while he was in medical school, school, it really pushed him to become a murderer. And experts in the documentary agreed with this to an extent, but also stated that Holmes began to disassociate with the cadavers as being human beings. I found that to be really intriguing. I really feel like I should have probably studied psychology because I'm just so intrigued by the human mind and everything that could affect people. But I thought that was really, really interesting to say how he became a murderer just by disassociating. So I don't know much about psychology, but that was my big takeaway from the movie. Beth, are you ready to go on to part two and tell us what's going on? Hold on. I know you're about to drop. I know it's going to happen. I'm waiting. Okay, hold on. I got to think about a story. Oh, I have a good one. Go ahead, Beth. Drop. I'm trying, but how do I do it? No, I really like... Okay. No, I'm kidding. Like I'm waiting for you to drop because you keep freezing. Let me just see. Ask out. Okay. Okay. Technically Beth hasn't dropped, but I'm going to tell a really quick story because she's, she's out of the room. She just walked in a second ago. Okay. Let me tell you about the time that she had to sit there and tie shoelaces with me. I was three years old and who ties their shoes at age three? So Beth was charged with teaching me how to tie my shoelaces. And it seems like we were on that picnic table for hours. I'm sure it was probably 20 minutes, who knows? Anyway, she helped me tie my shoes and she had so much patience. So my mother thought that I was so smart that she had me tested for being gifted because I could tie my shoelaces at age three. And that was pretty good for the fact that you had a three-year-old tying shoes. But in the meantime, no, it was because Beth and I sat on the picnic table. Beth, how long did we sit on the picnic table tying shoes? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Well, it's, it seems like hours. I wasn't allowed to get up until you learned. But is that a children's perspective? Yes, that's a children's perspective. Did you know that mom thought I was gifted because I could tie my shoes at age three? No. Yeah. She had me tested. That's pretty cool. Apparently, I did not test well because I went into regular mainstream classrooms like everybody else. You're making up for it now. <laughs> yes, on my own will, I guess. You did just get your doctorate. Yeah, but I haven't had any intentions of saying that online. But if everybody wants to know oh, I, that I'm on. I'm a doctor, I mean, I'll say it. Hey, you all, I'm a doctor now. It's in information systems, which is what Al is working on at your end right now. And shouldn't I be able to help you with that? Because that's my expertise. Hey, Deb? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. It's on my end. Oh, okay. Ever since the fair went into development, a young Pittsburgh engineer had a dream to make a structure so tall it would overtake the height of the newly built Eiffel Tower. On December 16, 1892, the city's committee granted this engineer permission to build his structure in the Midway Plaisance, which is located on the south side of Chicago. Luther V. Rice, 
assistant engineer based out of Missouri, received a letter asking him to build a vertical revolving wheel 250 feet in diameter. What the letter didn't reveal was that this wheel could hold 2,160 people. Can you believe that, Deb? I'm trying to think of in a space. Okay, so you're going to put, put put that many people on a wheel, but I need something to visually help me figure out where else you can fit 2,000 people. I know. It seems unhumanly possible. Yeah, and the weights for the structure, holy cow. Exactly. And it was supposed to propel 300 feet into the sky over Jackson Park. This height measurement stands a bit higher than what we know today as a Statue of Liberty on Staten Island in New York. The engineer who wrote to Rice signed the letter, George Washington Gale Ferris. Okay, that makes sense. And why does it make sense? Well, come on, the Ferris wheel. Do you remember going to the Western Fair? Yes. I love that fair. And that was one of dad's cheesy little traditions that he took us to annually. When my kids were growing up, I did the same thing and took my kids to the local fair. And the Ferris wheel was always one of our favorites. I did not know that it was named after him. I guess it's just one of those things that you don't really question, you know? The thing about this story that I like so much is there is so much that comes out of the world's fair, as we'll talk about later. And everything is just so intriguing. It is because, you know, you think that that's back in the time when there's limited resources or because... Yeah. So you've got that going on, yet the world is coming to the Industrial Revolution period of time. So they, I mean, this is around the time that everything really, really started to explode and the world is what we know it as today. Mm -hmm. In February 1892, John Olmsted, the man in charge of the fair's construction and landscaping, was burning out fast from his massive project. He suffered from depression throughout his entire adult life, and he was reaching his limit on his job assignment. For example, building on the grounds had a lot of delays, damages, and fighting over the island that he wanted to keep free from overdevelopment. That's interesting that he was concerned about overdevelopment at that time. Again, we just spoke about the Industrial Revolution and everything exploding, but it's interesting, I'm thinking from an environmental standpoint, that you already had people saying, hey, we don't want this area to be overdeveloped. Exactly. That is really funny back then when things were less populated. Yeah. You know, you were talking about Jackson Park in episode one, we were talking about how the same architect that made Jackson Park also made Central Park in New York. And I have been to Central Park and it's big and beautiful, but it's surrounded by all of these high rises. Yet there is just some space that is clearly not developed and still has green space. You know, going back to that's that's pretty interesting that this gentleman was thinking about the development of the area at that time with the population, sure. It sure is. So Olmsted asked Charles Elliott, a former assistant and one of Boston's best landscape architects, if he could come and help. When Elliot arrived, he saw how sick Olmsted was. Olmsted was in such pain from all the work he took on, which was too much even for a man half his age. So he decided to step down from the World's Fair project and leave for Europe to get some rest. Olmsted boarded a boat that was set for sail on April 2nd, 1892, where he eventually landed in Liverpool 
Harry Codman was forced to take over direct supervision of what was known as the White City because Jackson Park was full of white buildings. By early March, Olmsted and Elliot were back in Brookline, which is located very close to Inglewood. Elliot was now a partner and the firm was newly named Olmsted, Olmsted and Elliot. It was worry over Olmsted's health and pressure of the work that prompted his leaving Chicago. On March 11th, Olmsted left the work in care of his superintendent, Rudolf Ulrich. The dedication to the fair had been anticipated nationwide. Francis J. Bellamy, an editor of Youth's Companion, thought it would be a wonderful thing if all the children across America would say something in unison. He composed a pledge that the Bureau of Education mailed to every school in the country. As it was originally worded, it began, I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands. Wow, that's the Pledge of Allegiance for American schools today. Yeah, I think that is really cool. It is cool because you're giving me so much history, like the fact of the people that made the parks in the area and how this ties into how the Pledge of Allegiance is said. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I always remember standing up in elementary school singing, Oh, Canada. (laughs) And then I remember God Save the Queen. Yes. Do they still do that? Do you know? I don't think so. Okay, yeah, we did that too. With construction completed on Holmes World's Fair Hotel, the Columbus World Fair opened on May 1st, 1893. This fair is known around the world and began in celebration of Christopher Columbus's discovery of America. It ran from May to October, attracting people from all over the world. Again, I'm starting to see all this connection. Now, I remember as a child hearing about the World Fair. They don't still have one anymore, do they? I think there are. When I was Googling World Fair, I wanted some details on um, this particular story. I saw other World Fairs come up. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess it's around the world. It's kind of like the Olympics, right? Yes. World's Fair. Maybe it's coming to a city near you. Who knows? Holmes was receiving a lot of traffic to his hotel. Although he told men looking for a room that there were no vacancies, he always had room for women. Now, in part one, we left you with the fact that Holmes remarried for a third time to Minnie Williams. However, Holmes still needed to have time alone with his female customers and found an apartment several blocks away from his hotel for Minnie to live. Holmes explained to Minnie that she needed a nicer, larger home to herself rather than staying at the castle where other guests frequently came and went. Holmes was becoming known as a man who forgave easily because he didn't bat an eye when any of the guests left without paying her bill. Town folk also overlooked his constantly smelling like chemicals because his whole building did as well. After all, Holmes was well known in the community as a physician, plus he ran the pharmacy on the ground floor of his retail building and hotel. The World's Fair was a massive event that ran an exposition in addition to carnival rides and other entertainment. This intrigued many visitors because they were able to observe the latest inventions, such as a display of the first zipper, as well as the first all-electric kitchen, which included a dishwasher. A dishwasher? Wait, what year was this? 1895? All I know is that when I was a child, we weren't allowed to have a dishwasher in our home because dad always said he had three of them. <laughs> you, you, me, and Kathy. I know. Well, I, I miss having one. You don't have a dishwasher? No. What? 
Sometimes I wash three times a day just to keep that kitchen looking nice. You know what? There's nothing wrong with going back to simplicity. (laughs) Says the girl who has a dishwasher. (laughs) (laughs) And did you know, Deb, that Juicy Fruit Gum made its debut on the market? Popcorn known as Cracker Jack and Shredded Wheat Cereal, just to name a few. Can you get over that? First of all, I only like one of those three, and I'm not going to say which one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that's cool that it goes back that far. Wow. That's innovative for the yeah, time. It certainly Juicy. is. Huh. There were shows put on by Buffalo Bill and Annie Oakley, who was known as a sharpshooter and appeared in the Wild West show. George Washington Gale Ferris continued to work diligently to get his 300-foot-high wheel working. Although H.H. Holmes clouded a shroud of mystery over the World's Fair, there are some intriguing facts that came from the fair. For instance, Mr. Ferris invented the Ferris wheel. Mark Twain arrived to Chicago to attend the fair, but was sick and remained in his hotel for 11 days. Wow. Frank Haven Hall, the inventor of a machine used for typing Braille, unveiled a new machine that made plates for printing books in Braille. There, Haven met Helen Keller, and Walt Disney's father, Elias, helped to build the White City. Did Walt Disney use that as a starting point for his Magic Kingdom? Hmm. The writer Al Frank Baum attended the fair and he was so impressed by its appearance and style and was a jumpstart to his book, The Wizard of Oz. I would have to look at pictures of the World Fair to make that connection, but that's cool. I mean, there's so much that has come specifically from this World's Fair. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. So thanks for the little bit of history besides what we're, you know, the topic that we're on. I love that you're adding history to it. That's cool. Yeah, I kind of like it too for a change. Turning back to Chicago, we're going to talk about how Holmes progressively worked his way up to heinous crimes. Holmes went on to use the World's Fair as a backdrop to his majority of his murder schemes. During the time of Chicago's World Fair, he is said to have murdered over 200 hotel guests and their children for insurance payouts, cadaver sales, and sex crimes. I can't believe he got away with this for so long. I'm yeah, sure you're never investigated. That seems just kind of weird. I think you're right because I'm sitting here saying you, that's a big number. 200 people, like nobody reported people going missing, but you're right. And then again, I think we talked in part one, how if you've got people going to traveling a distance, well, they didn't have the telephone yet. They didn't have mm-hmm. any other way to communicate besides letters, which took how long to get to people, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know, a lot of time could go by between people being missing. And then I'm thinking if anything were suspicious enough and homes were investigated, then of course he can say, oh yeah, they checked out. No problem. They they left days ago. But I, yeah. just, I find it fascinating that so many people fell victim to him for whatever devious crimes he wanted to commit and it kept going. Mm-hmm. Holmes' first victim was Dr. Robert Leacock, who attended medical school with him. After Holmes was caught, he never really gave a valid reason to kill him, except that he had to start somewhere. Holmes enticed Dr. Leacock to come to Chicago. Holmes enticed Dr. Leacock to come to Chicago, and Holmes poisoned him with a high dose of laudanum, which is primarily used in prescribed cough medicine. He put Leacock in a tub full of ice so he could collect $20,000 in life insurance. He used this money to build his murder hotel. 
always scheming, Holmes hired his furniture mover, Wade Warner, to pretend to be the inventor of a new glass bending machine. Warner built a glass burner in the basement of his hotel to fool investors. Once the equipment was built, Holmes killed Warner because of a check fraud. Holmes collected money on two checks written out to Warner. He changed the check amounts to add the words thousand, and he was able to collect another $51,000. If Warner were to discover that Holmes stole these two checks, he would be arrested. So he did what any criminal would do. He lured Warner to come back to the basement where the glass kiln was located. Holmes was able to convince Warner to step into the kiln. And when he did, Holmes turned up the gas and reduced Warner to ashes. Can I stop you there? If somebody were to ask you to step inside a kiln, would you do it? Well, when I first read that, I thought it was crazy. But then, of course, we don't know what his intentions are. I mean, it's kind of like taking a tour of the building, right? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Sorry to interrupt. I just had that thought. I will probably continuously interrupt you through this presentation. Very good. It is pretty intriguing. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1891, the cadaver killings began. This was a year that Holmes conducted much of his business murders through cadaver sales to the medical schools. This was also when Holmes went on a killing spree of massive proportion to sell off cadavers to the medical schools. Remember, these medical schools were short on dissection specimens in their labs, and Holmes constantly harvested bodies in the name of science when he discovered that selling bodies was quite popular. And I ask a question, it's probably a silly one, because we know that Holmes is the first known American serial killer. If cadaver sales were so popular, then does that mean all the other people that were selling cadavers to the medical schools just weren't getting caught? Because I think we talked about that in part one as well. Yes, that that, um, they were grave robbing. Okay, so they were grave robbing, but Holmes just took it to the extra step and he just blatantly started killing people. Exactly. That's what his brain was telling him to do. That's what, what? His brain was telling him to do. Got you. Okay. Normal people don't have those thoughts. (laughs) You are right, Beth. The mind of a serial killer. Okay. Keep going. By this (laughs) time, Holmes had Charles Chappell. Sorry. Hold on. I keep talking over you. I told you I would do that. (laughs) I'll let you finish laughing first. (laughs) You should see her. She's got her eyes closed, head swinging back. Oh, my God. There's nothing funny about this situation, but what you just said about his brain was telling him, okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm done now. All right, three, two, one, go. By this time, Holmes had Charles Chapel, the master skeleton preparer, on his payroll to skin bodies down so they could be mounted in doctor's offices. Holmes could get $130 for just one mounted skeleton. Holmes preferred to explore the body thoroughly, but did not like to use Chapel too much so as not to raise suspicion. Sometimes he would commission Chapel to finish skinning a body, but most of the time he disposed of the bodies himself in his kiln or in pits filled with quicklime in the basement of his hotel. Was this the same gentleman that he hired in part one to skin people like rabbits? Yes. Okay. Holmes set up an underground business in the basement to move corpses in and out without bringing attention to himself. He found that it was incredibly easy to sell bodies to the medical schools, so his killings became very routine. Holmes went on to murder another man named Dr. Russell, which Holmes claimed to be an accident. The two men got into a scuffle over rent, and Holmes struck Russell with a chair and ended up killing him. So he sold Russell's body to a medical school. 
Ever the convincing businessman, Holmes invited an investor by the name of Charles Cole to his castle. Holmes struck Cole with a gas pipe and crushed his skull so badly that the party who he sold the corpse to couldn't even use it. This is the reason behind Holmes installing a gas vault in his office, so that he did not sell off any more corpses that appeared to be bludgeoned to death. However, Holmes' method of choice was to use chloroform. I guess I have a question. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm following along with the story, but I have another question. All right. Ask away. <laughs> okay. Sorry. If he was so stupid enough to turn in a body that was bludgeoned to death, or, you know, I guess it was probably stripped down to the skeleton at that point, but it appeared to be bludgeoned to death. How come nobody turned him in? What do you think his excuse was for turning in a corpse that looked like that in that condition? This man had an excuse for everything. He was a very smooth operator. That's why the women liked him so much. And everybody was enamored by this man. You'll find out later in the story that everyone is enamored by this gentleman, if you want to call him that. No, I don't want to call him that. <laughs> no, <laughs> it certainly wasn't. Holmes' murder method of choice was to use chloroform so that his victims appeared to die a natural death. He would get his chloroform supplies from the clerk in his hotel pharmacy, who made a comment later that he was always got so much chloroform. This is when the women's killings began in 1892. A waitress in Holmes' restaurant went missing with no word as to her whereabouts. Also, a stenographer went missing around the same time. Another woman who was staying in the hotel went missing, but the reasons for her staying there were not clear. Family and friends began inquiring about their missing loved ones, but the police did not become involved because of the large presence of rich visitors and foreign dignitaries that began arriving in large numbers, all in the name of the World's Fair. And there's your answer to your question. Yeah, that makes sense. And then while you were actually talking, I had another thought, which was, why is he only targeting women? Because isn't it just try to, to try to make money at the medical schools? Wouldn't men be just, a, or maybe because women are, I hate to say this out loud, the weaker sex. So physically, he was probably able to overcome them more so than a guy, except for the one that he put in the kiln, right? Right. And I, and I wonder, too, if it might be because uh, it would be more noticeable if men disappeared. Because they were the ones to basically bring home the bacon. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, this man thinks of everything. He sure does. News of missing residents or guests would be poor publicity for such a grand event, and the city's committee worked very hard to prepare for this chance in a lifetime to show off their city. Yeah, we don't want negative publicity, certainly for such a big event. This was certainly an event on a grand scale for those days. Mm-hmm. A few papers reported that police received a tip about a drugstore clerk or stenographer by the name of Kitty Kelly, who went missing in 1892. But this was never really investigated. Again, because this is still the 1800s, many people came and went without the ability to fully follow up on their whereabouts. There are dozens more victims reportedly to have gone missing, which we will add to our show notes. But there was little investigation of their disappearance. So now we're going to talk about Anna, also known as Nanny and Minnie Williams. On July 4th, 1893, the World's Fair opened its festivities with fireworks. 
Before settling down for the night, Holmes told his wife, Minnie, that he wanted to take Anna on a tour of the World's Fair Hotel. Well, Minnie stayed at the Wrightwood flat in preparation for any new renters. Anna was Minnie's sister and came to town to visit during the World's Fair in Chicago. Anna was charmed by Holmes' good looks and charm, just as Minnie had described to her in letters before her arrival in Chicago. Because Holmes knew that the most of his guests would be at the World's Fair, he took Anna on a tour of the drugstore, restaurant, and barber shop where he ended his tour in his office. Holmes took up reading a document and nonchalantly asked Anna to go into the vault to retrieve another document. She complied and right behind her followed the ever so quiet Holmes. He closed the vault as if by accident. All the while, Anna was pounding on the door and calling for help. She thought the door closed on its own and that Holmes must have gone into another room. That makes sense. I mean, to come to that conclusion, I would probably think the same thing. Yeah. Eventually, Anna took her shoe off and banged on the door as hard as she could. What she didn't know was that Holmes sat just outside the door receiving sexual pleasure, just listening to her cries for help. Eventually, Anna went silent as Holmes filled the vault with gas from his secret valve in the closet. What a scoundrel. I mean, why? I I don't get it. I just don't get it. Yes, his brain is telling him to do this but it's it's, just so gross yeah and non-stop and i don't i don't even know his reasoning behind how he thinks he can even get away with this no he seems to be um working faster on getting rid of people yeah don't cross him don't worry i won't Hold on. This is not funny, but it's, I guess yours and my interaction today is comical. Well, it is. We started this, uh, <laughs> went online exactly two hours ago. Holy so cow. Just chatting and recording and stopping and fixing my computer. We're two hours into this. I know it's not going to be another two, so we should keep going. <laughs> okay. Later that evening, Holmes summoned Minnie to the murder castle from her apartment. To be honest, there was not a lot of information on Minnie's disappearance, so we can assume she met the same fate as her sister. We do know that Holmes enjoyed being close to his victims, close enough that he could hear them panic, especially if they were lured into the vault, which held back most of the noise, although not all of it. Because of the noise of those locked in the vault could be heard by nearby guests, Holmes used the means of gassing visitors in select hotel rooms and let them die in their sleep. Remember when we were in part one talking about the phenomenon and the footprint? Yes. Do you think this could have been? Now, I mean, I don't know. You did the research on this. I I looked up some of this stuff after part one. But do you think that the footprint could have belonged to Anna or Minnie? I'm going to surmise no, at least to Anna, because if she took the shoe and banged on the door, she would be standing up and holding that shoe way up. Oh, yes. Okay. That makes sense. So I don't know whose foot it was because it never mentioned in the book because it's an unknown fact right now. Okay. Because of the noise, those locked in the vault can be heard by nearby guests. Holmes used the means of gassing visitors in select hotel rooms and let them die in their sleep. 
Most guests in the hotel were easily killed because in 1894, they were less likely untraceable. Even if the family knew people were going to the World's Fair in Chicago, it could take weeks before people were reported missing. By then, Holmes could easily say his guests checked out of his hotel with no incidents and no one would be the wiser. Holmes later said during his confession that his guests were either gassed from the pipes installed throughout the hotel or he crept into the rooms with a chloroform soaked rag. He had so much chloroform. Isn't that what his aide said in the pharmacy? Exactly. And now we know why. Interesting. And some people may wonder, well, how would he not hear him enter? Well, Al comes home from work at midnight when I'm asleep. Comes in, turns on lights, comes into bed. I don't hear a single thing. I don't either. I'm a very heavy sleeper. I mean, I've had people when I've especially had a cold or something and maybe taken some cold medicine. I have had people throwing bricks at the side of the house where they knew I was sleeping to try to get me to wake up. And it's virtually impossible to wake me up because I'm a heavy, heavy sleeper. (laughs) Me too. And so once Minnie and her sister Annie were targeted... Holmes still needed to dispose of the bodies. It was said that either he sold their bodies to the medical schools or he hired moving services to pick up a box and a trunk. If indeed it was the latter, he hired Cephas Humphrey and told him to come just after dark because Holmes didn't want the neighbors seeing Humphrey move the trunk. Humphrey went to retrieve the trunk and found it to be extremely heavy. He was instructed to take the box to Union Depot at a specific platform. Holmes made arrangements for the box to be picked up and loaded it onto the train, but a destination was never disclosed. Regarding the trunk, Humphrey could not recall where he took it. Soon afterwards, Holmes made a special donation of a collection of dresses, hats, and shoes to his assistant, Benjamin Pitazel. Holmes said the items belonged to his cousin, Minnie. Oh, he's starting to give all of the women's clothes away. Mm Mm-hmm. So in 1893, we're going to start talking about his insurance fraud. On October 30th, 1893, the World's Fair came to a close. And with it, Holmes thought it was time for him to move on because he was feeling the pressure of having creditors coming after him. By this time, Holmes was accumulating debt in excess of $50,000. In addition, many people were also coming forward wondering where their missing family members were. So everything is really starting to build up and, and people are no longer taking no for an answer from him, right? Exactly. He's starting to feel really squeezed and very... Um, Running out of excuses. Yeah, exactly. Huh, okay. Well, I mean, I guess it had to eventually, but interesting too, that the timeline is when the World Fair is coming to a close, because didn't he build the hotel for the purpose of accommodating people for the World's Fair? For sure he did. And then I think you said in part one that he was planning on destroying the hotel afterwards anyway. So interesting that the timeline is that maybe he's starting to make a lot more mistakes or coming up with too many unbelievable stories at this point. How long does the fair go on? I think you said May to October, right? Yes. Okay. So yeah, that's that's long enough for him to do his dirty deeds. Mm-hmm. Now remember, Holmes was a free man at this point since he just disposed of his wife, Minnie. Since he inherited her land, he was considered quite wealthy. He soon began courting 23-year-old Georgina Yoke, whom he met at a department store. Like the woman before her, Georgina quickly fell head over heels for Holmes. He loved to give presents to her, which included a Bible, diamond earrings, and a locket with a little heart and pearls. Holmes asked her to marry him, and of course she said yes. 
Once they were married, Holmes told Georgina that he would have to go by the name of Henry Mansfield Howard, an alias that would cover for his old debts. Oh, yeah. By the way, I have to go by a different name now. That's fishy. Yeah, very fishy and something in today's day and age that we certainly would frown upon and start Googling and seeing where this person is known. In the meantime, remember how I started this story by telling you that Holmes was big into insurance fraud? Yes. Well, in November 1893, police paid him a visit to follow up on money frauds he previously committed in Inglewood. That's where he lived before moving to Chicago. When they arrived, the authorities discovered several shipping packages waiting to be picked up. When they asked what was inside, Holmes lied, so the police were not aware that the packages held dead bodies of his victims. After the police left, however, Holmes burned these packages because he knew police were closing in on him. There was no telling how soon he and his murder castle could be discovered. Question. Mm-hmm. You said he had a kiln downstairs that he burned one of his victims in. So why wouldn't he just use that? And for I guess here's the deal. What's he doing? Is he selling bodies off to the medical schools? Or is he trying not to do it to everyone? So they're not saying, oh, wow, that's a lot of bodies this week, Mr. Holmes. Where yes. are you coming up with those? That's how I interpret it, the story to be going. So, so instead of shipping them off somewhere, because somebody's got to receive them, maybe he's in cahoots with somebody to do that. But why doesn't he just use the kiln downstairs that he used on his first victim down there, the one that built the kiln, remember? Yes. And we'll find out later that there there wasn't a huge number of remains found. So he's divvying up to different people so that he can't be caught. He really put his thinking cap on. He did. After the police left, however, Holmes burned these packages because he knew police were closing in on him. There was no telling how soon he and his murder castle would be discovered. Holmes also set fire to the first floor of his hotel very quickly and on New Year's Day 1894 he fled to Fort Worth, Texas with his new wife Georgina to secure Minnie Williams' land. They eventually ended up in Philadelphia where they met up with Holmes' former acquaintance Benjamin Pitazel. Now we talked about Benjamin during part one where Pitazel was taking the cure for alcoholism and inspired Holmes to open the Silver Ash Institute. Pitazel was also the one who introduced Holmes to Emmeline, who eventually went missing like the other woman who came across his path. Pitazel was also Holmes' partner in the insurance scams that took place before he moved to Chicago. Little did he know he would become Pitazel's next victim. Holmes has no scruples, man. He is hitting up the people closest to him. Yeah, that's so wrong. In the fall of 1894, Benjamin Pitazel took out a life insurance policy for himself in the amount of $10,000, which is about $330,000 today. Oz, you said that Benjamin is the one that came up with some of these life insurance policy schemes before Holmes moved to Chicago, right? Yes. So were they not taking life insurance policies out on families of three? I don't know if I already said that in part one. Yeah, you did. So I guess my question is, is how I don't want to disrespect Benjamin because he's a victim, but I'm just curious to know how he would not think he's taking an insurance policy out on himself for a scheme that he and Holmes did years earlier and took on other victims. You know what I'm doing? That is an excellent point. Excellent. I don't really know where I was going with that other than to say, I don't know how Benjamin would not have come up with 
I mean, at least had some kind of indication that something was about to happen to him. And that's what I'm assuming is that something was about to happen because you just said that he was about to be Holmes' next victim. So yeah, like he had done before, Holmes said he would find a person of similar appearance to set up a quote, fake death. Both men traveled to various parts of the United States committing various frauds along the way. Eventually, they ended up in Philadelphia, and this is where Holmes bound Pitzel's hands together, then burnt him alive. So that's different from what he's been doing in the past. Yes. And that seems very personal. I mean, ultra-violent, Exactly. But also really, really personal. He must be getting more lax about hiding his victims. Yeah, because he, he's already knowing that people are closing in on him. So that makes sense. Realizing that Pitizel's wife and children would inherit the money, he told Benjamin's wife, Carrie, that her husband was in hiding and that he could take the children to him. Once he had the children, he cut up, burned, and stuffed eight-year-old Howard up the chimney of a house in Indiana. He took the two girls, Alice and Nellie, with him all the way into Canada. The girls wrote letters to their parents back home, but Holmes never mailed them. On October 25th, 1894, Holmes put the girls in a makeshift gas chamber made out of his luggage trunk. Where would he get gas at this point if he's on the run? What happened is he rented a house and the trunk was inside that house. So okay. I just so they, okay. So they they I mean obviously you had, you know, when you have gas inside a house to keep the house warm or to do cooking, right? Right. Exactly. Okay. Okay. I didn't realize that he was in that house. I thought he was okay, go ahead. <laughs> so in eighteen ninety-five Holmes was on the run. In the meantime, the insurance company became suspicious that Benjamin's death was no accident, and they began an investigation. So there we go. There's our first investigation. Finally. They hired a detective by the name of Frank Geyer to track down who took out the policy. On July 7th, 1895, Detective Geyer was assigned to the Holmes Pitizel case. This took his search to Toronto in Canada after other avenues did not reveal any sign of the children. His search led him to a house where Holmes once rented. The landlord commented that Holmes arrived with very little furniture, a mattress and an old bed, and an unusually large trunk. So there's our trunk. The girls are already in it? Or that came later? I guess I'm I, getting ahead of myself. Yeah, I think they, it came later. Because just the nature of the big trunk, everybody would feel how heavy it is. Although they did say earlier that the trunk was heavy, didn't they? I think that was a different case. But if the landlord is just saying he arrived two months ago and he came with an unusually large trunk. I mean, I don't know. Were the girls with him? I don't know. Yes, they they were with him. But did the landlord see them? with him that's the question that is that's the mystery yeah every story needs a mystery and here's one of them most definitely the owner of the house also stated that Holmes wanted to borrow a shovel to dig a hole in the basement floor to store potatoes now back in those days they didn't have cement basements and that's why people are digging into the floor they were cool by the just by the soil and then too interesting that they're storing potatoes so the landlord's not thinking anything's fishy because I'm sure it was quite normal at the time to store potatoes we know how long potatoes last so if, it, if it's in a cool dark place, then I think they last even longer, right? Yeah. Yeah, So nothing's out of the ordinary. 
As Detective Geyer took the lead and began digging in the basement of the house that Holmes had rented, a stench became very overwhelming. He soon found a soft spot where a slight hole had been made, and on July 15, 1895, Alice and Nellie's bodies were found in this Toronto cellar in a makeshift grave three feet deep. While removing the bodies from the basement, Detective Geyer noticed that Nellie's feet had been amputated. The point of my telling you this is because Nellie was club-footed and Holmes amputated her feet so she could not be identified. Upon further searching, her feet were never found. Later, the authorities eventually found teeth and pieces of bone among charred ruins that belonged to Alice and Nellie's brother Howard in an Indianapolis cottage that Holmes had rented. The coroner could not find any marks of violence on the children and surmised that Holmes locked the girls in the large trunk, then filled it with gas from a lamp valve, like I mentioned earlier. So oh. there, oh, there's how we have our gas. All right. Well, yeah, that, okay. I wasn't even thinking about lamps back then. Oh, me neither. So here in 1895, we're leading up to Holmes' arrest. Police discovered Holmes' ominous past because those letters that Benjamin Pitizel's daughters wrote, he never got rid of them. The police were able to piece together a timeline of events and eventually exposed all of Holmes' murderous activities. Why would Holmes not get rid of the letters? If he knows people are closing in on him, would he not want to get rid of as much evidence as possible? But if he is like the typical serial killer who likes to keep a little piece of their victims with them, you know how how serial killers tend to keep something from their victims. I guess I'm tossing around the idea, did he hold on to those letters because of that mindset? Or maybe he's just starting to make more mistakes as... I think you're right. I think he's he's wanting to keep a little piece of remembering them. And who knows, he could have had other stuff too that we don't know about. And then too, I mean, there's no telling what was in the letter. So whatever yeah. he could be reading too, could be a piece of it too, as to why he kept them. But I find it interesting that at this point, he he's really starting to make mistakes and why he wouldn't get rid of letters is beyond me because he's pretty good about setting fires, right? Exactly. So Benjamin Pitizel's daughter, Alice, led the police to the Gaunt House in Toronto. Through the letter she wrote to her family and Holmes never threw them away. This led the police straight to Holmes' murder hotel, which they stormed the day after the body of Pitizel's children were found in that basement in Toronto. Holmes was eventually placed under arrest in Boston, Massachusetts for insurance fraud and for the suspicion of murder. He was eventually held in Myomensing Prison, Lokati. He was eventually held in Momensing Prison, located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's funny, Beth. Because you had a typo, and I was trying to pronounce that he had no idea what a Lokati was. Beth is doing such a phenomenal job of reading this story, and I had a typo there, <laughs> so she was... And normally I pick those up and I change them. Yeah, well, you were hooked on, you were hooked on phonics. <laughs> <laughs> but right now I want to talk a little about the investigation of locating Benjamin Pitizel and Holmes' murder castle grounds. On the morning of July 16th, 1895, A nationwide news report went out to the discovery of multiple bodies being found on the Murder Castle property. The district attorney's office called Momasing Prison to let the warden know that Holmes was not to be given any news of what was found. They explained that they needed this information to come as a surprise 
in order to fluster Holmes into making a confession. And we know how Holmes can keep his composure so well. So they need something to catch him. Yeah, that makes sense because you hear all the time today that there are things that are kept out of the news, mm-hmm. except for that one little piece that the suspect is, you know, is holding on to and that only they would know. So that makes sense. Yeah. Throughout the original search for Benjamin Pitazel, the authorities and Detective Geyer were never able to locate him. Detective Geyer's discovery of Pitazel's children prompted the authorities to visit the Holmes building in Inglewood, which, as you remember, are the suburbs of Chicago. As the investigation continued, authorities discovered that Holmes was not the man he led people to believe. There was speculation that during the World's Fair, dozens of people were killed by Holmes, which mostly consisted of young women. Chicago detectives began to take a very close look at Holmes Hotel, or, quote, castle, and this is what they found. The third floor was dedicated to small hotel rooms that Holmes would rent out to guests who were in town for the World's Fair. There were 35 hotel rooms that were located on the second floor. Some rooms were ordinary, while others had no windows and were fitted with doors that made the rooms airtight. One room on the second floor contained a vault, along with a cutoff valve found in a separate closet. This was later identified as Holmes' personal apartment. In Holmes' office, they found a bank book belonging to a woman named Lucy Burbank, which had a balance of $23,000. According to records, Lucy could never be located, and I myself could not find anything past her name being mentioned. Entering the basement of the murder castle, detectives found a vat filled with carbolic acid, which Holmes later confessed that he used to dissolve flesh off a body. That's pretty gross. Well, he's also a scientist, too. Remember, he loved chemistry, Mm -hmm. but he also dissected bodies while he was in medical school. So this is not unusual for him, although the act of doing this itself is not good but I can see how it wouldn't phase him too much. There was a second vat that was filled with bleach to whiten the bones. Holmes later admitted to the purpose of these two vats was to prepare bodies to send off to medical schools to use as skeletons. That's what I was just envisioning too. Yeah, me too. And I find it interesting that they use bleach to whiten them. It is interesting because I'm thinking, oh, they had bleach back then? But again, progress, sign of the times, (laughs) because they had Cracker Jacks and and Juicy Fruit Gum. What was the other one? Breaded wheat. Breaded wheat. Mm -hmm. Here is a rundown of other items that were found in the basement, Deb. Inside the first vat, the detectives found eight ribs and part of a skull. The basement also included mounds of quicklime, a large kiln, and a dissection table stained with blood. Detectives also found surgical tools and charred hide-heeled shoes. Articles of clothing were found in walls and pits of ash and quicklime. Detectives uncovered more mounds of quicklime with body remains, two of which were thought to be Minnie and Anna Williams. One of the biggest discoveries made in the murder hotel was that footprint impression left on the door of the vault upstairs, which we talked about much earlier, and we believed it to belong to Emmeline Seagrand. As the search continued, they found bones believed to be Pearl Connor, who was Julia's daughter, the woman who left Ned, the jeweler, back in episode one. While searching Holmes Hotel, authorities also recovered Minnie's watch chain and Nanny's garter buckle in one of the ovens. As for Emmeline, police believed that they had come upon her hair and bones. So here is a recap of Holmes' assumed victims so far. Julia and her daughter, Pearl Connor, in 1891. Emmeline Seagrand in 1892, 
and in 1893, Minnie and Nanny Williams. The bodies of Julia, Emmeline, and Minnie and Nanny were never found, but rumor had it Holmes probably sold their cadavers to medical schools. He consistently stated that Julia and Emmeline died while undergoing illegal abortions. On September 12, 1895, a Philadelphia grand jury voted to indict Holmes for the murder of Benjamin Pittisall. The city of Indianapolis, Indiana, indicted Holmes for the murder of Howard Pittisall, and Toronto, Canada, did the same for the murders of Alice and Nellie Pittisall. At the inquest, a man named Elvett Mormon testified that he helped to set up a large wood stove in a house rented by Holmes. When asked why a wood stove and not gas, Holmes' reply was that it was healthier for children. So there we go. The children must have been around. Oh, yes. Okay. Because that was the question. Now I'm wondering why it was a wood stove. I mean, what are your thoughts on a wood stove versus gas? Wouldn't gas be hotter or would it? No, wood stoves. Gas in one point can be hot, but wood stoves are so hot. I know of homes that don't even have central heating. Exactly. I have a friend that just built a smaller house and built it without central heating. It's just a wood stove. If you go on tours of old buildings and they do have something like that in there or an older house with the wood stove, I've been in those houses. The stove's never been on, but it's just one stove to heat the whole house. So I get it. Okay. Yeah. The owner of an Indianapolis repair shop testified that Holmes had come into his shop on October 3rd, 1894, with two cases of surgical instruments for sharpening. Holmes picked them up three days later. Okay, so that's a new twist on everything because it didn't seem like he used a lot of tools, but more so the gas is is what I'm going back to. So that's very interesting that they were even able to uncover that. Mm -hmm. But they're detectives. I'm not. Detective Geyer testified that throughout the search of the house in Indiana, authorities discovered human bones while sifting through the soot. Human teeth and a fragment of jaw was also retrieved. Mrs. Pittisall was summoned and she identified Howard Pittisall's overcoat and scarf pin and a crochet needle belonging to Alice. As usual, Holmes poured on his charm with both other inmates and the prison staff. He became a model prisoner and his charm gave him extra benefits while in prison. What do you think of that, Deb? I don't think that there's much difference between what he was doing outside of prison versus inside the prison. Once you got that personality and ability to charm people, I don't think that you can turn that off. No. And Holmes, he was allowed to continue wearing his own clothes and not even a prison uniform. He was also allowed to keep his watch and other small belongings. While in prison, he wrote a book on his success in insurance fraud and even wrote prison diaries and memoirs. You can find them through the United States Library of Congress. There you go, Deb, some extra light reading for you. Oh, I love biographies. I'm not going to say I'm going to do this one because this is a little intense. I might have to do a nonfiction. On May 7th, 1896, Chicago serial killer H.H. Holmes was hung for the murder of Benjamin Pittisall. So in closing, in 2000, 
2021, director Martin Sicorsi and Leonardo DiCaprio started to work on a television adaption of Eric Larson's book, The Devil in the White City, Murder, Magic, and Madness at the Fair that Changed America. This television adaption is currently scheduled to be on Hulu. Yeah, it actually might be there now because if they started it in 2021, surely it's going to be out there already. I'm so excited that we were able to get this in two episodes. Me too. There's just so many details I wanted to touch on. Less so on the actual murders and more so it was on the fair. And his behavior. Yes, and his behavior. Because you don't always get the backstory on their personalities or interactions. You always get the aftermath of what has happened and then everybody going back to investigate. But it's so cool that you tied in his relationships with people because he was just so cunning and didn't have any second thoughts on who is going to be his next victim. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So we're at the end and you haven't shared a teachable moment. Teachable moment. Do your homework before checking into a hotel. You might actually need to know if the owner has anything ominous going on. Check the local news to see what's happening in the neighborhood of where you're checking into a new hotel like that and that's a wrap (laughs) okay that's awesome yeah we're gonna start talking about teachable moments add some music and be done with it so what's up next beth do you know do we have any idea i think i'll look for something in canada i think that's a good idea we did one a couple weeks ago on canada so you all need to listen to that but let me go ahead and tell you what our our social medias are you can find us at dyingtobefound.com with the spelling just like our logo and then if you're looking for us on social media you can find us on twitter instagram and facebook at dying the number two the letter b found and we will talk to you next week bye bye